0: This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our StrikeTape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking wind site owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett.
1: I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes.
0: And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, a uh, big list of topics to discuss. Number one, community ownership of uh, offshore wind farms. Is this possible? So, interesting company uh, called Ripple is one of a few different companies on the web who are starting to try to break up, essentially, commodities, if that's the right word, into where you can buy shares of them. There's another company that's doing this with artwork. So if you want to buy a share of a Picasso, essentially, um, you could do that. And this is kind of the same concept. So we'll talk about that. It's an interesting idea. Uh, We'll also talk about uh, this new Spanish gas tax. There's a lot of issues with uh, natural gas and the the price of it overseas right now and how that's going to affect the wind industry. It's also an interesting story about the Ocatillo Wind Farm. Uh, It looks like it was a pretty rushed sort of project, had a lot of uh, controversy, a lot of um, Native people uh, in the area who were opposed to it. And it's been having some consistent problems and it's currently shut down. So we'll talk about some of the implications there. Uh, We'll chat about leading edge erosion. There's a new article about a small company getting some funding out of Scotland and raising some questions here about you know what what is leading red edge erosion look like right now what's the current state of these fixes and solutions and kind of where we headed we'll also talk about siemens gamesa's uh 5x platform how they've upgraded that and lastly we'll talk about the row motion camera which is a pretty cool piece of technology to take photos of wind turbine blades while the wind turbine is still operating and rotating at a high speed so before we get going i want to remind you to subscribe to uptime tech news which you'll find in the Podcast show notes or description if you're watching here on YouTube, that's just our weekly update email Where you'll get an email of the new episode helpful links, uh, you know All the other stuff around the web if you want to stay up with wind energy news and be sure to subscribe to rosemary Barnes is awesome engineer with Rosie channel uh, Which is here on YouTube and we have a uh, sponsored live stream with her uh, a couple times a month So check that out a lot of good stuff out coming out of uh, rosemary's YouTube channel So let's start here with uh, Ripple Energy. It looks like they're a UK based company. And essentially, if you go on their website, it just says it's pretty straightforward. I think they do a good job of explaining what they do, which is that, hey, you can reserve a share of of our next wind farm project. So they're, you know, buying wind farm projects and then you can buy a piece of it and help to offset your own costs. So this is sort of that community uh, ownership model. So Rosemary, I'll throw this to you first. Does this seem like the future or does this seem like there's only something that's going to fit select people?
1: I'm not sure about the future. It's definitely the past. Um, When I was living in Denmark, it's pretty common there, or at least it it was back um, when the wind industry was maybe a bit more small scale, a bit less about, you know, building wind terms, wind farms with hundreds of turbines. And I actually had a, a friend, a, a colleague at my old job who was on the board of his local community wind turbine. It was just one single turbine and they got to, you know, be in charge of the operating and the manufacturing schedule and stuff like that. And, you know, like they could even climb up and have a look and tweak the settings. And and it was very profitable as well because um, turbines that were installed, Old, like a decade or more ago in Denmark actually had really generous um tariffs um so i thought that was super cool and i was desperate to get involved in something like that but all the you know all the shares have already been snapped up long ago in Denmark we have one community wind farm in Australia, in Victoria. Um, I was actually supposed to visit to do a, um, a climb and uh, make a video on it, but the pandemic stopped that for a while. But that one started because um, some developers wanted to make a wind farm in the area, met with a lot of community opposition, um, and then this one local guy was like, this is a shame, I'm going to drum up community support. And then in the end they managed to raise – um what was it yeah 9.8 million um dollars raised from two thousand cooperative members to put up two wind turbines and that was um i think it was installed in about 2010 or something like that um and it's been going ever since but we've only got that one so then this new one where it's um ripple seems to have a bigger wind farm and now they're talking offshore it's a bit harder to see how it it's not like that old kind of community involvement where you really feel like you own it. Like I don't think just because you've bought shares in an offshore wind farm, you're really going to feel like that's my wind turbine that I own, you know, one, one thousandth yeah. of. Um, so I, I like it. And I mean, I, I just cause I love wind energy so much, I would buy shares and something like that if I could. I think the payback period was something like um, 12 years or, or something, which is a bit more than what you would get for rooftop solar in Australia. So, um, probably makes more sense in the UK where that's probably a decent, decent payback for, a, you know, a way that you can get involved in renewable energy on a personal level.
0: That's a good point. Cause obviously like, I'll give you an example. My parents have, uh, solar panels on top of their house. Like they got approached by a company a long time ago, said, hey, based on where your house is and where this how much sun you guys get, like you'd be a great candidate for this. Would you want to do it? And they've done it. and It's really lower their utility costs a lot. That's a pretty common story, obviously. But yeah, that's a good point. I mean, these shares in a wind farm might make less sense and might have a, a, a longer payback period than than uh, than solar. So, I mean, Alan, how does this strike you? You're more of our our, our our business guy here on the podcast. Does this seem like this is a viable thing or is this sort of seem quite sort of sort of like I don't know more fluff than substance. It, it, it's a real thing,
2: and, and we've 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 done it in America a number of different places and times. Uh, you know, most of the electricity generation in the states, especially if you get talk about the Midwest and heading, you know, through Montana, Wyoming, where everything was local, and so it was, it was a local investment to create the local electric company or the local telephone company, for that matter. I don't think the UK has been that way. So this this is a little bit of a different play. When electricity happened in the United Kingdom, it it tended to happen like city by city. Like one of the first cities in the UK that was electrified was Manchester, right? Which is a big industrial city. So it was it kind of grew from the major cities and spread outwards, and I think it was more of a governmental effort. So it it is unique now that the average citizen can now buy a part of a winterman, invest in a winterman. I think that's the unique part because, you know, UK is not that big of a place uh, compared to America, right? So a lot of it was organized and the UK has been much more organized than America has been uh, for many hundred years more. So it's a little bit of a different tact, I think. And it may not be that common in the UK where it is pretty common in a lot of other places of the world. So from a business standpoint, though, I, I, I wonder how, Efficient this is going to be because, in any sort of investment like this, there's only a certain amount of patience that investors will have on return on investment. If it doesn't start returning on investment, the whole thing will sink. And that'll be a problem because now there'll be this asset out uh, in in the ocean that. No one owns, and that's not a good thing. So I wonder what the downside protection is in something like this. You know what the upside is? They get a lot of good wind, and they're selling a lot of electricity, and gas prices rise, which means electricity prices rise, and everybody's happy. But if it, hap- if it happens to fall, uh, yeah, you could lose your investment. That's your worst-case option, and uh, that's where you know, it's the downside of markets. And, and you don't really want to do that with an electrical grid. In my opinion, uh, too much turbulence in the electrical grid is not good for the average citizen.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, with Ripple, it looks like you can invest as little as 25 pounds and you could you could invest in as much as 120 percent of your yearly electrical consumption. So this isn't like stocks. It's not like you're investing in the wind farm itself. Like if the wind farm, you know, goes gangbusters like when you're not investing in Orsted, for example, it's not like a you're investing in the overall company. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it's a little unclear, but it looks like Ripple is. The like the digital like they're the they're the software platform that connects these co-ops with the people who can invest in them. So, like right. Ripple doesn't actually own own the wind farm. A co-op no. will own the wind wind farm, and Ripple is sort of p- supplying like the software solution to connect buyers with them, which makes a lot of sense. Like that 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 makes sense because a co-op doesn't necessarily want to, you know, get all this technology infrastructure in place to do that. That's what there's. That's the that's the technology that. Ripple's providing.
2: Right. So they're acting like a middleman in an electric electricity marketplace.
0: Think of it that way. So, for example, Ripple acts a lot like a property manager for a building like yeah. here in D.C. There's tons of apartment yeah. buildings. The ownership doesn't lease out, you know, whoever the investors who bought that building and owned it and built it. And, and they don't lease you your apartment. So they're going to handle that off to a property manager. And that's essentially what Ripple does. They're the property manager for um, for this co-op connecting people. So. So, yeah, but you're right. I mean, there's definitely some risks. I mean, nothing is, is risk free, but it's an interesting new way to invest in this. And, and one of the things I mentioned was that kind of a similar thing, which is not quite the same. But this interesting company, Masterworks, this has nothing to do with uh, wind energy, but like Masterworks is another platform. And this just seems like to be a trend in the digital space. Masterworks lets you buy a share. So Masterworks will buy a painting like a priceless two million dollar painting. You can buy a share of it. And then they'll sell that painting later, like five, ten years from now, trying to get a certain return. Um, So it's just interesting, like the way technology has opened up people to get involved in different things that they could otherwise never afford. Like if you want to own a wind farm, good luck, you know, raising a hundred million dollars. But now you can own fractional ownership of lots of different things like paintings, you know, wind energy, et cetera, et cetera, beyond just the traditional stock market. So I think that's cool. Um, But moving on, let's talk about this uh, Spanish gas tax so over in europe there's a lot of trouble with rising natural gas prices um this is really boosting electricity costs and so basically in spain they're going to impose charges of 40 to 80 euros on wind farms if they don't buy gas and are earning what they call quote unquote a windfall profit so they're basically going to kind of penalize uh wind farms for you know, where the natural gas, whenever natural gas exceeds 20 uh, euros per megawatt hour, you know, these all the zero carbon electricity producers are going to have to give back excess remuneration. So, Alan, what do you think about this? It seems like a mess. A lot of people are really upset. They said there's going to shut down a lot of wind farms.
2: Sure. Well, <laughs> because there's no revenue being generated if, if the if the, the government's just going to come in and take all the added revenue, then. They'll just quit. I mean, there there is consequences for doing that. And it, I think it's funny that the that the government can think like, well, they're making too much money. We know how to use their money better than they do. So we'll just take it. Well, the, the response for that is like, well, you'll take nothing. We'll just shut it all down and walk home. Right. And that, again, it goes back to the consequences. You're playing with fuel fire here. Like there, there are people who need that electricity. And Spain historically hasn't been the most reliable in terms of electricity generation. Uh You know, they used to shut down the power uh, electricity at nighttime in certain big cities. Uh, So electricity generation is needed. And if you keep playing around in those marketplaces like that, you're not going to find anybody willing to invest in them or to promote them or to run them. And that's I think that's a trouble Uh, when The European Union is weird in this situation, I think, Rosemary, because I think the European (laughs) Union would would poo-poo this, right? They would think this is not right. But I I guess the Spanish government is saying they can do whatever they want to. Does that make sense (sighs) right now?
1: Well I'm not an economist at all but it seems weird that they've got a big problem that with with gas supply um, and so you know that's causing the price of electricity to go up because there's you know not not enough generators so they take the the one group of people who have invested in something that is you know increasing reliability and punishing them for having invested in yeah uh, in in something that they clearly Desperately need to diversify their, um, yeah, their operations. So, or their generation sources. So, I think it's really weird from that point of view. And I doubt that we're going to, they're not going to go so far that people are going to start shutting wind farms because obviously that's just going to exacerbate their problem much worse and make the government look very, very bad and hurt the people that rely on the electricity. So, I'm sure they'll sort it out. But, um, yeah, it is a really, it's really weird. To, it's hard to understand what they're even trying to get at in this um in this aspect. Um So I'm going to wait and see how it plays out because it can't it can't end here like this.
0: <laughs> I mean, is this like a bailout, Alan? Is, is well, that a way to liken yeah, well, this, or the, am I off well, there? There's
2: a- no, I, I don't think so. I think there's just been a lot of governments in, in the EU, Greece being one of them, Spain being another. There's Italy being another that financially has been really been hurting before COVID happened uh, from the last economic downturn. So now that COVID's happened, a lot of the industrial parts of of the of large countries have been shut down. So therefore tax revenues drop. Therefore you can't afford to do the things that the state wants to do. So they're going to start going after every points of revenue and providing and creating these little tax, um, take backs going to call. They're going to take back from the quote unquote wealthy and distribute it to whoever they feel like, I guess. And, but that doesn't make things better. It just exacerbates the problems you already have. And, and, Puts economy can put economies in really big tailspins here. So they, they're really playing, in my opinion, they're playing with fire. Like, you don't want in a fragile economy situation to start just randomly taxing uh, corporations because corporations are smart. Business people are smart. They see that happen to one industry. They think, well, it can happen to me also. So here's what I'm going to do to protect myself. That's not good, right? And I, I it's so the, the bigger picture is some of these countries got to you know, figure out their economic conditions and figure out how to to survive. Um, And this is not a good way to go historically.
0: Well, it looks like there's going to be a legal challenge. Uh, The Renewables Association APA is threatening to take the government to court. Um, But I don't know. I mean, is the rest of the world as litigious as America? Like in America, if there's anything you don't like, just go ahead and sue them for like the next five years and just tie it up in court. Um I don't know I mean Rosemary obviously you're not in Spain but do you do you know much about the these illegal challenges in the in the rest of the world
1: um, I think Australia, I've noticed Australia is getting more that way recently. We've got like a whole spate of, um, politicians, especially that are suing. Don't let um, us,
0: don't let us rub off on you. Don't let us do it. <laughs> yeah.
1: They're, they're like suing people for saying something mean on Twitter. Uh, you know, like a politician sues, sues someone for something crazy like that. And there's a YouTuber getting sued. I actually got a little bit scared and got legal advice because I don't want to be sued by any politician. Um, so in Australia, we're getting more that way. Although I think the businesses have always to, you know, maintain their, um, their rights. So it doesn't surprise me that businesses would do that everywhere, even if, you know, in general the country isn't as litigious I mean, if you, it would be very harmful to the industry. You can't just, you know, change the rules so that any time that times are good, that you don't make any money. I mean, wind, wind farms and solar farms as well, you know, they've got variable variable pricing and they rely on those really um, high periods of high prices to make up for the times when there's slow prices. So I think it's easy to say, oh yeah, they're raking it in right now. But when you look over the, you know, the lifetime of a wind farm, there's going to be good times and bad times and you, you need both to make the business case stack up, so no, I think it, I think it will be a huge shame if it goes ahead, and I'll be incredibly surprised if they um, do something that would r- ruin that because the renewables industry is huge for Spain. Um, you know, they they benefit a lot from it. So uh, yeah, I think it'll work itself out, but it's a weird announcement that <laughs> that they've chosen to you know. Be so antagonistic.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely, if this was in the US, this would be, I mean, there'd be so many legal challenges already <laughs> floated out there. So the fact that this is threatening, I mean, makes sense. Like if I was a business in Spain, yeah, this would be so, something you definitely get the lawyers involved with because it's potentially going to have a major impact if not shut you down. So that makes sense. But Yeah, we'll we'll keep an eye on this. And this is a great time to just remind you all that Rosemary supports all politicians equally and unequivocally. She loves all politicians. Um, So just put that under your thumb. Um, All right, moving on. So over in California, there's a farm, the Ocotillo Wind Farm. This is about it looks like maybe an hour and a half due east of San Diego, um, pretty close to the Mexico border. Uh, But this has been a controversial wind farm from the beginning. They've had a couple wind turbines throw blades. They've had one recently collapse. And this, this was not without controversy in general from the beginning. And now the fact they've had like relatively, you know, they've had reoccurrences of incidents like major safety incidents over and over. We're now finally the wind uh, farm is shut down, at least temporarily. It's not permanently closed. But the the feds essentially moving in and figuring out what's what's been going on, because I guess in the past, uh, an entire blade was thrown like near a place where there's maybe foot traffic and there's just been a lot of the the concerns i guess that were voiced of course many can you know many communities voice concerns to new wind farms some of them are founded some of them are not but in this one it seems like a lot of the concerns you know were well founded um alan what was your take on this situation in ocotillo and is this it seems a little bit out of the ordinary that this would be shut down like this but then again it seems like they have had a lot of problems
2: they have, and it—I don't know if it's particularly unusual, but I—I I think it, you know, it, get, it gets down to whether some workmanship issues, whether there's some installation foibles that happen, or—or or is it just the environment that the wind turbines are in, or causing additional problems that they hadn't envisioned from the design standpoint? I don't think anybody really has a handle on that yet. And, and lately, what we've noticed is uh, more of a tendency to shut down all the turbines in a particular wind farm site and to get the engineers back on site to figure out what's happening, to have a plan of attack, and to also communicate that to the to the, the local community. I, I think that's probably been one of the better moves that the wind turbine operators have done lately is when they've had issues like we've seen in Iowa recently, where they had some wind turbine uh, blades break off from looks like lightning issues, they really were. They really took the lead on it. I, I thought the the operators there took the lead on it, and also made sure everybody understood what was going on. They started shutting down some of the turbines. This all makes sense, and I think it's the right thing to do, because it, what your what your worst case situation in these sort of failure events is the local community just completely loses faith and really starts driving the politicians to shut it down. And I I know the current vice president was actually involved in some early litigation uh, with this wind farm site and decided that she had a conflict of interest and didn't essentially do anything. But uh, you know, they have connections to start reaching out to politicians and could shut this thing down in California. Anything can happen any moment. that's one thing you know about California. So, I'm a little, I'm a little concerned uh, about the engineering side of it, and probably Rosemary can talk a little bit more about the engineering side of the wind turbine. But I think politically and just sort of the, 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 the communication is, a, is getting better, and that's a good thing.
1: Yeah. Do you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about another American wind farm that was just decrepit, you know, falling apart. And with that one, I remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was, it was some manufacturer that doesn't exist anymore. And I was like, okay. So they never, their design just wasn't, wasn't up to scratch. And that's why they went bankrupt. But these ones, uh, Siemens Gamesa turbines, I, I don't, know for sure, but I'm assuming that there are thousands of the exact same turbine installed without problem elsewhere in the world. Um, so it makes it a bit more interesting. And when I, I read a few articles on this, and it seems like there's been some allegations of fraud with the developers. I know that they misrepresented the wind speed um, and they don't make as much energy as was you know promised. So that's a, a financial mm-hmm. issue, but should make that engineering job easier. I mean, they should be less loaded. So I don't know what's going on, but it's really strange that, yeah, this one wind farm full of Siemens, Gamesa, turbines is – you know un, unsound whereas all the other ones that are installed around the world I mean you don't you're not hearing a lot if, if there are a lot of wind farms with this turbine falling apart to the extent that this one has where it's multiple turbines I think like two towers have buckled and blades have been thrown mm-hmm. including one onto a um, onto a track I mean we would we would have heard about that and'd be a big problem for the company so I think yeah we've got to look politically and as well for the the real cause of this.
0: Well, this is in the desert. So if you look this up on Google Maps, like I have, it's like, and that's what I don't I don't quite I guess as much. I mean, obviously there could be vocal opponents in any any place, but this is not really. This is not really an in, like an inhabitable area. Like this is smack in the middle of the desert. It's not that far from the the, the, the closest town is El Centro, but it's I mean this is only outskirts of town. This is in desert on desert land, kind of like between the mountains. So yeah, there's some highways that run through it and maybe a trail or two. But otherwise, this isn't like really in people's backyards, is at least the way it looks like on the map. But I mean, Rosemary, do you think it's just the temperature? I mean, this looks I mean, this is legitimate desert here, so. Is it just maybe yeah. the brutal heat and, and and wind? But obviously wind is not a problem. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, because they're saying there's less heat? wind
1: than there should have been, maybe. Or I wondered if maybe they're not being maintained correctly, or if there was some dodgy installation happen, or something, something that would mean that this wind farm and not the other wind farms that use the same turbine are having that problem. Yeah. There's plenty of turbines in deserts, and, and it's there's issues. It's hard. The sand is abrasive, um, but it doesn't sound like that's a really obvious cause for the specific problems that they're having.
2: Well, Rosemary, what causes the wind turbine blade to hit the tower? Like, how do you, how do you get that to occur? And to have the then the tower essentially fall over from that.
1: Well, I, I think the most obvious way is when the blade structure gets damaged in some way, so that when it loads, okay. it bends more than it it should. Um, I yeah, I mean, I couldn't say why. Often it happens from lightning strike, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah, I mean, for it to happen one time, okay, yeah, it could be a manufacturing fault. Um, if it was a serial defect with all of these types of turbines, you'd see it a lot elsewhere. It's um, what nearly mm-hmm. ten years old now. It's not yeah. like I just can't see how you could have so many issues with one farm and none um, elsewhere. So it's weird.
2: <laughs> does the, does a blade pitch drive drive that? Like, so if if the if the pitch of a particular blade got decoupled or was commanded or had some sort of hydraulic issue where it was positioned incorrectly, wouldn't that be able to drive the blade into the tower? Just a pitch issue? Yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean when wind speeds get high they have to start um regulating the reducing the power output so that the generator can keep up and if that didn't happen then you might see at a high wind speed too much load on the blade and it could yeah bend and, and hit the tower. Mm. So I guess that's a, a possibility. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah I never thought about that before. Um, so yeah, so I guess they're gonna shut it down and do a root cause analysis and really get to the bottom of this. But I think that's a good point that these are Siemens Gamesa turbines that are successful, well engineered turbines that are doing fine most other places. So the question is, you right. Why are they doing so poorly here? And what's the, what's the variable at play? So moving on, we're going to talk about leading edge erosion a little bit. So there's an interesting story from a news um, Just of a small Scottish company, uh, Edge Solutions. They've gotten some funding recently, seven hundred euro or seven hundred thousand euro uh, for their armor edge um, solution for leading edge uh, erosion. Now we've talked about leading edge erosion a bunch, and the greater point isn't uh, of today isn't really like this company and what they're doing. Because there's a lot of companies that offer leading-edge erosion solutions. There's robotic repairs. There's wet repairs. There's, you know, these plastic, um, you know, shields that are epoxied on. Um, But, Rosemary, like, where is is the current state? And this seems kind of weird that that they're still throwing money and, and doing testing. Like, there's a lot of companies that are doing this. But it sounds like leading edge erosion just really isn't solved yet and that they're still looking for potentially new solutions. Is that that kind of the climate of it at the moment?
1: Yeah, that's right. They're definitely still looking for solutions. There's a wide range of um, products available that make a big improvement, but um, definitely the issue isn't solved. And I think it is one of the major, few major, like top major headaches that um, when when farm developers and operators are experiencing now. I think it's one of those problems. It's really, um, it. It's hard to imagine why it's so hard to solve. It seems like once you've identified that this is a problem, then you would just fix it and then it would be gone. But um, it, it's incredibly difficult to make a material that is going to withstand the conditions that some wind turbines are in. And it's not all wind turbines. I think um, it's interesting that this is from Scotland because people always bring up the coast of Scotland as, like, one of the worst um, places to install a wind turbine in terms of leading-edge erosion. They just have, like, a lot of rain, The, the like, droplet size of the rain is particularly problematic there um maybe they've got some dust and stuff in there i'm not sure but um yeah it's a, that that's a particularly harsh place to, to try and have a leading edge last for 20 30 years
0: well and you've you've done a lot of leading edge erosion testing mm-hmm. on strike tape your lighting um protection tape what's tell me about the droplet size that's interesting i don't know that much about it is a smaller droplet worse is a bigger droplet worse i mean is there something in the middle
2: yeah, it depends, and that's that's part of the issue. And I think ORE Catapult over in the UK is doing a a good bit of extensive research on droplet size and the, the effect of droplet sizes on leading edge erosion, which is a very fascinating topic because it also has applications in other areas like aircraft. Uh, and the the I think in the last I would say the last two or three years, we know more about leading edge erosion and sort of the dynamics of why why a water droplet can be so catastrophically damaging to something that's pretty rugged otherwise, right? Wind turbines are pretty rugged things. The fiberglass epoxy systems are pretty rugged. So how can a droplet of water actually do that much damage? And it has to do with how the water droplet hits the hits the surface and then kind of reflects. There's a sort of a shock wave that comes backwards. And in that shock wave, that shockwave tends to want to rip things apart at a microscopic level. So it isn't like one water droplet wipes out a whole leading edge. It's, it's the repetitive nature of that. It's sort of like a sandblasting effect with, with water. So in our, in our experiments, and we've done a lot of rain erosion testing at our facility, and the water droplet size plays into it really heavily. Angle of attack, how the water droplet hits the surface plays into it a great deal. So I, what you're seeing right now, I think, is trying to develop some standards around it and then prove it out in service. And I think what we're finding is there, the, our first cut at it about five years ago in terms of rain erosion testing uh, and what we thought worked is now been out in service four or five years. And we're finding, like, it works in most places but not all. And that's why ORE Catapult's stepping in to, to provide some more technical leadership there. The, the latest one, I think this is interesting, and I think Rosemary will think it's interesting too, which is they're talking about using essentially what an airplane uses which is a sort of a hardened nickel leading edge. Like on helicopter rotor blades use a sort of hardened hardened metal as a leading edge to protect the leading edge. That's one of the solutions they're talking about for wind turbines. And I know you you looked at heating wind turbines and I thought, well, you put a piece of metal out there, how well is it gonna go icing wise? And it just introduces a lot of complexity than just leading edge erosion, wouldn't it?
1: Well, I'd be most worried about the, the lightning protection of the system. Then, if you've got something conductive, then you have to make sure that it can handle a, a lightning strike and you know that the path of the lightning follows a non damaging route, as that, huh. I'm sure you're <laughs> intimately yep. aware of all those challenges. Um, it also just sounds like it doesn't fit the manufacturing process too well of a wind turbine blade. I mean, you'd be making a pretty precision made part to get the right shape. And then you have to make sure, I mean, every wind turbine blade is not the exact same shape because there is a fair amount of hand finishing. So I think that that, that would be more complicated than, than it sounds. I actually did hear um, a couple of years ago about some interesting um, directions that the, um, that they're going with, you know, technologies to get around this, not surfaces but actually um, detection and control. So there were um- – identifying what types of rain cause the erosion because it's not like all rain causes erosion there's certain types of rain that really cause a massive amount of damage in a short amount of time and then the rest is okay so if you can identify what those periods are and maybe slow down the turbine a bit during those conditions then you can potentially just for a small hit in um, you know it's not very long that you have to reduce your output and save a lot of damage that way I haven't followed up on how that's going but i did at the time a couple of years ago think that that sounded like a promising promising path
0: so was it more like the heaviness of the rain like like a really big downpour like really big droplet size or was it something like there's frogs in it like what's what are we talking what are
1: we talking here (laughs) i haven't seen anyone test for frogs specifically (laughs) but yeah i think heavy heavy rain and if it's um if it's dirty there can be like little um Bits of mm. dust in there. I think that that's bad. I've seen someone researching hail. Um, some at least some people think that hail causes bigger problems, but no other people think it doesn't. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not totally up to date on exactly where that is. Maybe maybe Alan is is more more current on that.
0: Alan, how how does the atmospheric conditions how, how do they interact with rain? So if it's like really dusty outside, or it's just you're in a kind of a windy you know, like desert environment. I mean, I assume that every time it rains, it's sort of collecting that dust inside it as it goes. Right. Is that Yeah. Is that how yeah. it works?
2: Yeah. If you notice on your car when it rains that your car gets dirty because there's there's dirt in the water, so to speak. Uh, so it's not pure water falling from the sky in any sense. Right. And uh, that does add to it a little bit. I think what or catapult and some of the researchers up in Denmark have been looking at really focused on the last year or so is something called the acoustic acoustic impedance of the leading edge protection. So it, it kind of falls into my world, which is like antennas and RF stuff and electrical, crazy electrical stuff where, where um, you're you have a shock wave that's hit the leading edge and you want to just let that wave move forward and not get reflected back. It's in the reflection back that everything gets torn apart. So if you can keep hmm. the acoustic impedance of your materials pretty stable and kind of shock absorbery that's <laughs> that a word shock absorbery uh oh
0: that... definitely not a word no no
2: okay. no, chance, no chance
0: it's a word no i
2: think we all know what it means though that you want to take a, absorb that energy we got it and we got it yeah let it absorb the energy in and not have it reflected back and try to tear everything apart so acoustic impedance is like something that people who make uh, like AirPods think about or uh, high-end speakers think about. It's not something that we typically think about on a wind turbine or an airplane or anything else that gets hit by the rain. So it's kind of a new area. There's not a lot of data about it, but that's where the technology and where the research is being focused at is on this acoustic impedance bit. So we'll see what comes out of it. It, It's interesting. We've dabbled in it a little bit, but uh, there's just some really serious research going on in that area right now.
0: So last question. So, Rosemary, obviously, you talked about it being really difficult to put like a, you know, if, if the nickel leading edge was a solution that was viable, it'd be really difficult to do that. But in general, why, like, why are all these secondary companies, these doing retrofits? Like, why why don't factories just make better leading edges is my question.
1: Well, they they do. I mean, every manufacturer has um, a leading edge protection product, whether it's um, a surface that they own a pr- proprietary surface, or if it's something that they're bringing in from like um, 3M has a, a wind tape product, which is probably I don't know the default standard. Um, and not everyone orders it. You know, it costs it costs more. Um, some wind farms have uh, a lot of problems with leading edge erosion. Some don't. Into to new areas where they don't know yet that they're going to have a problem with uh, leading-edge erosion. Um, yeah, so you can order a product, it, it adds cost, or you can order the blade without a protection and add your own. Or you might um, have done, you know, the modelling and um, have a estimate that the amount that you would have to add in maintenance um, is less than the amount that it would cost to install the leading-edge protection, so they choose not to. So... Definitely, everyone has a product available. Um, some are better than others. Some have, um, you know, some have better reputations than others in the industry. But it's definitely an area that a lot of smart people are paying a lot of attention to, and companies are spending a lot of money trying to come up with better solutions. So, at the end of the day, it's a hard problem to solve, harder than it it sounds like it should be.
0: So uh, Siemens Gamesa, uh, uh, speaking of, they have upgraded their 5x platform, and uh, they have two two turbines in this platform, the SG 6.6-155 and the -170, which that uh, number just refers to the meter length, so 155 or 170 meter length blades, and they have a flexible power rating between 5.6 and 6.6 megawatts. Um, so it sounds like they've upgraded these to 6.6. Alan, I mean. W- when they have these flexible power platforms, uh, like what are they waiting for? I mean, is it just new like software upgrades coming out? Or I mean, what's the why not? Why doesn't every platform just have the top rating from the get go?
2: Well, it's just because the technology gets better over a five to ten year period. And so the generators get get better. Uh, the blades get better. Everything gearboxes get better everything gets better. Electronics gets better. So, you know, the, the foundations of the wind turbines, which are the towers and the nacelles are, are just a housing unit or support unit. So you can put whatever it will support in there in terms of a generator and also electronic cabinets. So you could dramatically increase the amount of power. Like if you're going from five megawatts to 6.5, right. And that's, that's like a, is that a 30% improvement, some crazy number like that? That's a huge step up in terms of energy output. And so you, you start running the numbers. Well, how much energy can I produce? How much am I selling it for? If I So what is my return on investment? If I can basically take out this old generator, which is essentially paid for, maybe get something for it on the used market, putting a new generator and recover that investment in a year or two, a lot of people are going to do that. And I think in the United States right now, you're seeing a lot of that Upgrading of the generators, the blades, uh, uh, some of the control circuitry, and that kind of thing, software, to generate more power with the same platform—that's going to be the—that's going to be more of the standard than building new onshore in the U.S. I think it's going to be a lot of reusing what's already there because it's built, and not, the permitting goes away, all the, all the complexity goes away, so you can just produce more power. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and Rosemary, I don't—is that? Same thing going to happen in other parts of the world too, not just the US?
1: Oh, well, I mean, I don't think that a wind turbine behaves too differently in the US to how it does somewhere else with similar wind speeds. I mean, I was a bit surprised to see that they've got, they're calling it the same platform. And I think that they were calling it their 5.x platform. So it's weird to see a, a 6.6 <laughs> megawatt generator in the 5.x platform. And I think normally, I mean, my understanding of how the platforms work is, um, you know, you're trying to keep as much of the turbine in common as possible to, you know, so you can get your economies of scale and have a, a lot of um, turbines produced um, in the run. Um, and then chain tweak it so that it suits the, the conditions. So, you know, the first way they did that was basically you put the same turbine in a lower wind speed area. You've got to have longer blades to be able to use the generator that, you know, you would um, have in a higher wind speed area. So that's pretty normal that you'd have two blade lengths. So the 155 um, diameter is going to be for a high wind speed area. And then, you know, you use the same generator with the 170 meter diameter in a lower um, wind speed area. So that's all, that's all pretty normal. Um, but then to increase the, the size of the generator, then it means that you're able to capture higher wind speeds. Cause obviously you have got a five point, eight megawatt generator, um, at above a certain wind speed, it's, you're not going to be able to get as much power as there's more power available in the wind than what your generator can actually handle. So you upgrade the generator, you can capture more of that. And I mean, it's basically just a big, um, balancing, you know, you've got your, um, LCOE equation, levelized cost of energy, you've got your capital cost and then you've got the energy that you produce and sell. And you're just trying to balance that so that you overall end up with the lowest cost. Um, so I guess it's just giving more specific options to really precisely suit local conditions. Um, that's That's my interpretation of it.
0: So it sounds like maybe kind of the way like example Ford Motor Company would use the same frame of a of a truck as they would on an SUV as well. So they try to reuse parts just to kind of save the manufacturing. Alan, is that a good good analogy?
2: Yeah, it's like if you have an old Mustang <laughs> and you decide to put a bigger motor in it. It's kind of like that. You know, you're still using a lot of the components of the car, but you have a more output. Very similar.
0: So last on the docket today, um, the row motion camera, which is really cool. And basically this is solving one problem, which is can we not shut the wind turbine down to take photos of it. Obviously, drone inspections are a huge thing. And like drones are going to be ubiquitous if they're not already ubiquitous. Maybe they're already who 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 here votes for u- <laughs> drones being ubiquitous already today? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's like the best one of the best applications for it, right? But um, the row motion camera is a ground based camera. It's got a, like a little track, um, you know, can drive it around. And then it's going to rotate with the wind turbine. It's going to figure out how fast it's going um, adjust itself to sort of rotate with it. So we can take essentially still photos of a full speed rotating winter, which is really cool. Um, it's obviously got a pretty long zoom and it can just let it keep going and get good photos. Now, the question I think is, is this going to be better than a drone inspection, or is it just going to be something that's going to fit some customers and not others who don't want to spend, have the expense of a big full drone inspection and shut down for a day or two. Um, I don't know, Alan, where do you see this fitting in? Because it definitely seems like it has, you know, a use case. But what customers do you think this is going to be be right for?
2: I I think it's going to have to show itself to be less expensive overall to to take the images. And the drone's pretty inexpensive and it can do it fairly quickly. The camera method on the ground, while technically a a great accomplishment, I don't know if it can keep up with how fast some of those drones can, can scan these turbines the only, you know, the only difference between the two is one's spinning, one's not. So maybe in the shutting down and restarting, there's that time Delta there that can kind of even it out, but it doesn't feel like it. Uh, and I, I'm also wondering, like uh, it gets down to the expense of the thing, uh, you know, the cameras are in per- the technology and, and the, the, the high, uh, the big lenses that go along with that are not cheap. Whereas we're, we're buying these drones for almost nothing today. So the cost is where I think it's just going to choose a winner. There's obviously going to be places where the camera is going to be used because maybe they don't allow drones like Washington, D.C., right? I mean, there may be
0: places where you can only
2: use a camera on the well, ground.
0: Also, no wind turbines in D.C., but yeah, that's
2: well, a good point. Well, not You're yet. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, and so I, it's just going to be a little bit fascinating because I know how hard it is in the – because we're in it uh, in the wind turbine industry, when you come out with a technology product, how hard it is, and how many years you have to grind at it before the industry really accepts it. You're in. Well, oh, I'll give you a good example with uh, with Ping and Matt Stead. You know, I think he was working on it seven, eight years before it really got going. That's the kind of time frame it takes for the industry to kind of accept you and then bring you into the the chain of, of uh, buying decisions. So I'm, I'm wondering, because the drones have got such a head start, whether the drones are going to wind out in the end just because of
0: that problem. Rosemary, what's your take?
1: Well, I think um, I think there is some potential here, and I haven't seen the images that it can take, because I guess that's the, the, the thing. I mean, are they like crystal clear like a a drone image would be because the blades still or are they slightly blurry? If they're slightly blurry, then there's probably not, um, not too much Potential, but I think they've got several advantages over drones. The first one, obviously, you don't need to shut down. Um, and also it makes scheduling maintenance a little bit hard because you don't want to shut your turbine down if the, um, pri- like it's really good wind and the price of electricity is high. Then, you know, you, you, you don't want to shut down for any reason. So, There's that advantage, which is maybe not a huge one. But I think the second thing is that it's taking photos of the blades while they're loaded. So to me, that was a really interesting thing. So I bet that you can see more cracks from a blade that – Um, you know, like a smaller crack would be visible on a blade that's loaded because, you know, you imagine when you bend something that the crack will open up a bit. I think there'd be that. And also you would be able to see if one of the blades was perhaps bending more than the other ones, more than it should be, you'd be able to see that too. So I I think that if those – two things. Uh, if you really can see that information and it um, provides an earlier warning signal than the drone inspections, then I think that that would be a huge advantage. So I actually think that there's quite a lot of potential here as long as the images are, are really good quality.
2: I, I was watching some video on it because it's, it's super cool, cool technology. Okay. So it's got me hooked when, when it's and when they got some new software camera system. So what it's doing, it's actually taking images along the blade as it rotates, and it's it's splicing them together with software. That's essentially what it's doing. And the images, obviously what they showed on YouTube, look really good. So uh, my guess is that they've, they've got uh, you know the, the, the imaging software to get in and look at the blade and know where it's looking at also, so that it can splice the image together so it's a, it's a compound image much like with drones it's the drones do the same thing so it's it's almost giving you a similar end product the Rosemary's right i think on the on the stress in the blade and looking to see whether it may be damage I, i'm curious that it may i've not ever seen a wind turbine where i saw one blade bending more than another and probably i'm thinking god that has never seen that because that sounds scary but if you did you would be able to notice it and and that that's an interesting piece because you may be able to to pick out real structural defects in the blade while watching it move that you wouldn't otherwise pick up and that that's a really interesting thought and maybe that's where they're headed is is that this is a blade under stress let's look at it there versus in in and being still that's interesting
0: Well, it could and it could be like a bigger piece of the puzzle. So say you do drone inspections of every turbine in your wind farm and a couple of them have some, you know, like maybe you need to dig a little deeper and then maybe you do take photos while they're under load or something like that. So it could have that. But yeah, it's um, like I said, I think the the key is whether or not they're too late to really compete with drones and the ubiquitous nature of of their inspections (laughs) yeah so that's going to do it for today's episode of the uptime podcast thanks so much for listening be sure to subscribe on itunes spotify stitcher youtube wherever you're listening or watching Uh, again you can sign up for uptime tech news our weekly update on the podcast and news around the web in the show notes below and be sure to subscribe to rosemary barnes youtube channel which you'll find also in the show notes or description thanks again we'll see you next week on the uptime Wind energy podcast Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our strike tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.